Listener Production. So the Australian government's getting ready to launch a very controversial rescue mission in two dusty Syrian detention camps. The mission is to remove dozens of Australian Islamic State brides and their children. Some of these children have been born there. Yeah, so these Aussie families of these women and children have been fighting for years to bring them home, but the previous government didn't allow it. They cited security concerns. If we think that threat has gone away, that people wouldn't act out, uh, that there couldn't be an explosion in our country, then I think that's an incredibly naive approach to, to what's a very difficult and complex situation. That's Peter Dutton on the ABC. In today's briefing, why is this mission happening now? How will it work and what will happen to these women and children once we bring them home? Yeah, that's the second half of this podcast. First, here are today's headlines. It is Tuesday, October 11. Russia has bombed a series of Ukraine cities that haven't been attacked for months. So that includes the capital of Kiev as well as the western Ukraine city of Lviv. Um, Dnipro, um, they've all been targeted with missiles and at least 11 people have died and 64 wounded. Among the targets hit in Kiev were a popular pedestrian and cycle bridge, a major road junction next to a university and a children's playground. Yeah, so Russia's issued a statement saying the goal of the strikes has been achieved. All designated targets were hit and it's believed these attacks are retaliation for the bombing on the Kirsch Bridge So that is the 19-kilometre bridge linking Russia to the Crimean Peninsula, which has been annexed by Russia since 2014. That was a very important bridge to Putin. He opened it himself in 2018, and it's where they've been getting a lot of supplies through from Russia to Crimea. Yeah, and I I was watching on TV, you know, they were celebrating in Ukraine so much about this. They they didn't exactly directly claim responsibility for bombing this bridge, but they've put a picture of the burning bridge on a postage stamp and also a, a senior Ukrainian official sent out a tweet with the burning bridge and Marilyn Monroe singing happy birthday, Mr. President. It was Putin's birthday last week. So, yeah, there was a lot of celebration in Ukraine about that and I guess that's why uh, Russia's gone so hard with these attacks overnight. Yeah, and there's other big news on the Ukraine-Russia conflict. The neighbouring country of Belarus has now joined the war. President Alexander Lukashenko uh, says his country will form a joint regional group of troops with Russia. Um, He's accused NATO and some European countries of preparing an attack on Belarus. And the Bureau of Meteorology has released its forecast for the next six months. They're warning more flooding is in store for eastern and northern Australia. And there's a 70% chance of at least 11 cyclones in the tropics, with cyclones in Queensland expected to start forming next month. So these conditions are being fuelled by La Nina in the Pacific and also a negative Indian Ocean dipole in the West. Experts have said a fourth La Nina in a row is very unlikely. Gosh, I'll believe that when I see it. And it's never happened before. Uh, this one is set to weaken in January. And if you're chasing a bit of sun this spring and summer, um, you know where not to go. But where to go? Well, WA... Adelaide in South Australia and western parts of Tasmania are your best bet. A pill that stops cows burping and farting methane has gone on sale in Australia this week. It's part of a massive push by the CSIRO to help Australia slash its greenhouse emissions because 
Methane from agriculture is responsible for 18% of all global emissions. So that's a lot when you compare it to steelmaking, which is 7%, or flying, aviation, which is 2%. It's crazy to think that, isn't it? Mm. Um, So this pill is a seaweed-based feed additive, and it's been shown to cut the methane emissions of cows by up to 90% in tests. And we were talking about this Mm. earlier, Tom, and I'm like, how are they going to get the dosage right? But apparently in feedlots, they do individually feed the cows, so it shouldn't be too hard. The biggest thing to win over, I guess, is the hearts and minds of farmers. This is going to come at a cost, so um, issuing the and making sure that it's cost-effective will be the next hurdle. Well, I also hope there's no side effects for the cows. I mean, you know, they fart and burp for a reason. Yeah, true. When you stop that from happening, who knows what could happen? Anyway, good luck to the cows, but if we can bring down their emissions, then we might have to really start thinking about cutting down our flying. Yes. And former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins is reportedly not available for the next few days to appear at the trial of her alleged rapist. She faced three days of cross-examination last week and that was expected to continue yesterday when the Chief Justice told the jury she was not available. Yeah, so she won't appear today and the prosecution is now preparing to call other witnesses. And we have a Farnsey update. Uh, It's good too. John Farnham's sons say it's taken weeks, but the 73-year-old is now recovering well. Yeah, so he's coming out of that 11-and-a-half-hour surgery in August for mouth cancer after he found a lump in his cheek. And his sons, Robert and James, have told A Current Affair that it's too soon to say if he'll sing again. It's a long road to recovery still. We've still only just done the first stage. So it's a long way to go, so it's not even really on our minds, as far as I'm, I think. It's definitely not on his mind. Yeah, um, He just wants to get better. That's what everyone's going to be asking, though, because everyone wants the comeback, comeback, comeback tour now. <laughs> um, Fanzi has been in rehab for the last few months, but he is expected to return to his home in Melbourne's east very soon, which is wonderful news. Mm, absolutely. All right, in just a moment, the returning of the ISIS brides and their children. Now to our briefing on the rescue mission to bring home around 20 Australian women and 40 kids stuck in Syrian detention camps. So these are the widows, sons and daughters of either dead or jailed Islamic State fighters. And many of these women say they were tricked into going over there by their husbands. But many Australians do not buy that explanation, which is part of why this is so controversial. Since ISIS were defeated in early 2019, these women and children have been detained in two main camps, the Al-Hol camp and the Roj camps in northeast Syria. Now, these are extremely dangerous and violent places. Uh, Some of these women and children are sick or injured. Yeah, horrible conditions. So last year, we actually spoke to a father and grandfather, Kamal Debussy, who's been doing everything he can to try and bring his daughter and three grandchildren back to Australia from the camp. I desperately want my grandchildren back home so I can give them and help give them a future, um, get them in a place where they don't have to be afraid of bombs going off in the morning, where they can go to school and look at their future, where they can contribute back to society. I, I want my family back. In 2019, the government did get eight orphaned children out, but since that time said it was too dangerous to get any more. Yeah, but something seems to have changed by then. One thing that's changed is the government here in Australia, but we've also found out in media reports over the last week 
um, that there's been an ASIO assessment that's cleared the way for an operation to return the women and children sometime soon, although we don't know exactly when. So let's find out why and how this is happening. Katia Theodorakis is the head of the counter-terrorism program at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Katia, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. Tell us about who these women and children are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a bit of a mixed group. Um, it's, it's not homogenous. Some of them would have been taken over there as young teens or preteens by their parents, and they would have come of age in the so-called um, caliphate of the Islamic State and had children. Some of them would have likely been widowed. That's sort of the pattern we've seen across also the international cohort from other Western nations that have gone over there. There would also be a large amount of children, young children especially, under 12, that were even born in those camps and have never seen anything else. Um, A lot of times the male children, the boys, will be taken to a prison camp, away from the straight detention camp to an actual prison with the other male population of IS fighters. And that's where it gets quite tricky because in those camps you get a bit of a mixed bag. You get families that have completely turned away, possibly from the Islamic State due to the adverse circumstances or just generally disillusioned. Whereas in the prisons, you can assume that it's a higher um, level of extremism and support of mm. IS that's going on there. So there would be a, a cohort of of mixed backgrounds. Some of them would have gone very willingly. But I think we can be assured that our agencies and our government would have done the proper risk assessment that this level of indoctrination now is not there anymore, that they can be brought home without there having to be fear of an attack or extremist violence of some sort. Well, and we're also hearing that some of these women ended up over there unknowingly, like they didn't realise that that they were going over there so their husbands could fight. Absolutely. And I think that's really, really important to keep in mind. We're not talking about just a little league of terrorists. I think often when, when emotions get involved, and it's obviously a topic that understandably it draws out a lot of emotion because the ideology that the Islamic State so brutally put forward. is it, It's completely at odds against anything to do with our value system or anything that we can even excuse. It's just blatant, horrific violence against us, directed against us in the West, sort of this collective guilt that we have by not you know, adhering to that IS ideology. And I think it's really important to keep in mind that there were, to begin with, varying levels of support, and in some cases no support at all, exactly like you said, and that even now the overriding variable that they all have in common is trauma. So we're talking about 20 women and about 40 children. They're now living in two detention camps in remote parts of Syria. One camp is called Al-Hal, the other is called Roj. And we've actually seen these camps on TV because two of the prominent grandparents who want their grandchildren back have actually travelled there. Karen Nettleton is one of them. The other is a bloke from Sydney called Kamal Debussy. So tell us about these camps and the conditions these women and children have been living in. Mm, yeah, that's it's really important to, to think about this. So Al-Raj camp, where most of the families or, or all of them that are planned to be repatriated are, is not as bad as Al-Hol camp. So in those camps, crime is rampant. The, the conditions overall have been deteriorating. There have been reports about little children freezing with frostbites and some babies dying from completely preventable causes. There is, as you would expect, probably a certain degree of lawlessness as well, where you get this group of really, really extremist um, women that still adhere to IS. They formed again this moral police called Hizbah, 
where they would patrol the, the camp and make sure that, you know, um, women would adhere to dress code standards that they had previously or even worse. They're, they're sort of, IS is now marketing this as like the remnants of its um, original caliphate. And this is where the caliphate still exists. And there have been some horrible reports recently of murders, crime, that's sort of been escalating. And that's, I think, what's led to this increasing momentum behind getting them out now. Yeah, it's really mm. interesting to drill down on on the reasons why this is happening now, because over the years we've been told it's too dangerous. But, you know, we saw Karen Nettleton, we saw Kamal Debussy, two grandparents, they were able to travel there. Um, so were the camera crews that filmed them. So was it really about the danger of extracting them or were there other reasons why this hasn't happened until now. If you can get a Four Corners crew in, surely the army can go in and get them out. So the argument that Absolutely. it's a security, and too much of a security risk to actually go in and do it doesn't really stack up, does it? It has to be about the political implications of returning these women back home. Absolutely. And I mean, it is, we shouldn't forget that it is a real dilemma. So politicians are are ruled by their calculus as, as what makes you a politician. But at the same time, it's not an easy task because you're tasked with also keeping with the public interest, which in many cases is public safety. And it's on you if you've sent people to war, similar situation, and they come back in body bags, that's on you. If you're the head of a security agency or you work in national security in any way and you make a decision and people can die, your risk calculations will be very different than someone who's you know, a family member who doesn't have to look at so many different factors. So it's definitely a policy dilemma but over the years, we've seen that other nations who were also understandably reluctant have made those decisions to go back, repatriate them, often with the help of the U.S., who've offered logistical support and, you know, transporting them back safely. Or we don't know a lot of those things are classified. What do we know of the risk associated with getting these women and children home? And second of all, what's going to happen to them when they are repatriated here in Australia? Yeah, it's it's so important to look at this because I think previously it was sort of this blanket risk assessment where it was like, no, it's just too risky. But what we're seeing now is that there have been a lot of assessments being done beforehand. And what, what we know, and I'm sure more details will emerge, that in this mission that was publicized last week by ASIO for the first time they've gone there and the risk assessments they've undertaken have led them to repatriate them in sort of a staggered approach where the first cohort that's coming back was assessed in terms of vulnerability, the most vulnerable children who are quite likely ill, maybe also depending on their age, and that the focus will be on dealing with the trauma but informed by national security priorities. There will be a comprehensive package that will be applied where the children will obviously get all the care they need in terms of psychology, in terms of the social support networks, embedding them again in the community, seeing if they're ready to go to school possibly, what, what their needs are in terms of just, I guess, dealing with trauma that comes from having lived in a war zone for so long. But all the women apparently have also agreed to submit to control orders. You basically submit to being monitored by the government in quite a heavy way. You, some of them may even be wearing an ankle bracelet. You may have a curfew. You may have to report to the police several times a week. Your movements will be monitored. So they've all agreed to join this. I believe some of the relatives have said, we'd rather have them in prison here than them mm. just continuing to just be exposed to this risk where they will eventually probably just die. 
So are those control orders for all of the women or just some of them, depending on what they've done? Yeah, we don't know yet. I think the significant thing that was reported was that they apparently all agreed to to do this if, right. if it was deemed necessary. Some of them will also be detained quite likely upon arrival. Some of them will likely be charged under that and be taken to detention. And from seeing what's happened in other countries, there would have been a lot of preparation gone into to say, okay, these women will likely be charged. What's the support mm. network for the children? Do they need to go into foster care? Is there an extended family there? What kind of community, surrounding communities there to support them? And that's why it, it took, justifiably, it took time. I think there's been quite an understanding that this couldn't just be done overnight. But there's been enough time has passed that our agencies would have had ample time for preparation. I'm sure they've done that. So what you're saying is that all of them have agreed to these control orders, but some of them may be charged with traveling to a prescribed region where this war was going on. And they were laws we introduced, I guess, to to deal with that problem you outlined earlier, which is gathering evidence from the battlefields really hard. But yeah. you make it much simpler when it's illegal to travel to these places. Absolutely. So, so your expectation is that some of them may end up, and we don't know how many of the, the 20 women in particular, may end up in jail for breaking that particular law. Correct. Correct. Mm. This is a new situation. It warrants maybe some creative assessments also in terms of maybe, you know, the age of criminal culpability Mm. with some of the children where it might be a little bit borderline. I think there's a lot of concern for female teenagers that sort of come of age that were possibly also active on social media. And if this is the environment they've grown up in, they would have posted things in support of the Islamic State. Hashtag, you know, life in the caliphate, things like that. But even with child soldiers, they're still foremost seen as victims. It doesn't mean that they can't also be perpetrators, but in the approach to rehabilitate them and reintegrate them, the approach that's taken is even if they have committed crimes, because they were forced to, they were trafficked, they're still first and foremost victims. That was Katya Theodorakis, who's head of counterterrorism at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which is a security research think tank. And Katrina, I didn't know this until we started researching for this topic, but other countries have been taking back hundreds of citizens from these camps, including Germany, France, the US, even Russia. So Australia will actually be one of the last, which gives me the impression this may have been on the cards even without the change of government here in Australia. Yeah, but I think what many people will be wanting to see is, uh, regardless of how we choose to bring these people home, some of them will need to be brought to account, even if they're arguing that they were tricked into going there, that they didn't know what their partners were up to. That's not going to wash with a lot of people. So I think it's how we bring them back and also what we do next that will be important to many. Tomorrow on The Briefing, an interview from Bali, as we remember 20 years since the Bali bombing. Listener.